Mach 3, give me crew show on 2, 3, 4. Mach 3, give me start line 2. 5 electric. Mach 3. Mach 3, give me start line 1 and crew show on 7 and 9. Mach 1. Crew show 7 and 9. Do something. I hate weapons. Super Ops line 3, Red Bull Avionics. Super Ops. Line 4 is code 3 for engine vibe. Hey, so I started a Patreon because, frankly, this stuff's getting expensive. Nothing will change the podcast or the blog if you don't subscribe, but if you want early access to episodes, monthly AMAs, episode shoutouts, voting on podcast topics, and all kinds of 20 Years Done gear, head over to patreon.com slash 20 years done. This month's top tier Patreon shoutout goes to Kevin Traw, Robbie Walker, Travis Barnes, JT Owens, and Delinda Baker. Thanks for the support. Okay, so... This episode, we're talking to Mike Sissel again, who you'll remember from last episode. Probably don't need to do the introduction, and if you haven't listened to uh, episode 30, the Maintenance Culture with Mike Sissel, I recommend you do, because it's going to be a continuation of that. And uh, I get a sense that Mike isn't surprised we're talking again, because at the end of last episode, he noted how quickly the hour went by. So uh, we're back. And that's kind of the the fun thing about doing the podcast is we can pick up where we left off. And those that are that haven't listened to the first one, you can just listen to these two back to back if you want. So lucky you. So last episode, we talked kind of generally about, well, generally about maintenance culture and then specifically about instances in your career and my career where we had been abusive to people. And we were trying to, A, own what we had done, recognize it for what it was, but also see the broader picture about how we contributed to that culture and very likely how that culture promoted and incentivized us to be abusive. That's probably the quick synopsis of it. And the underlying idea is it's easier to kind of see these things from the outside looking in or looking through the lens, you know, to our past. And I do it because I I'm hope that people who are currently serving will be able to hear this and kind of digest it and recognize their own influences and their contribution to that environment. So we're going to talk a little bit more about what maybe is causing it and a few more instances from our careers that might sort of shine light on it. So after the episode, maybe a day later, Mike, you sent me a message asking, hey, do you remember the first time you were toxic. And much like we talked about before we started on this episode, I kind of use toxic, abusive, and psychological harm kind of all interchangeably. I know tox- toxic and a toxic leader and toxicity is a bit of a, a buzzword and overbroad. But when I say toxic, I mean someone that is just needlessly abusive that causes other people to experience distress because of the, the behavior, the treatment. So I guess the question is, why did you ask me about the first time I was toxic? What made you want to ask that question? Um, thinking about just realizing that the story that I told was basically the most, I said the most shameful and it still holds. It's just like the first time that I was really that just obnoxiously, obviously uh, toxic. And, um, and then thinking about what happened at my previous uh, location 
And so it led me to think of like the moment that made me have an inner snap where I cared less about other people. And um, so I was wondering if I asked you, if you remember that moment where you started to feel toxic towards others, would you remember that kind of snapping moment inside yourself of like, okay, this just happened to me and I no longer have that much empathy for anyone else. So you're saying that that story that you told last week about putting the guy at the pole, that was, that was the first moment you remember kind of transitioning to the other side, the dark side kind of, is that the first incident or is that just the, the first one that you, you know, or that was the closest time period that, you know, I would say that, like I just explained, just the, the first most uh, obvious example. So there were uh, maybe, uh, like I explained later on, where, you know, a buddy of mine told me, you know, when I was a dick, you know, maybe I was a bit of an asshole beforehand. But that example that I told is just like a whole nother level. Than yeah. just it was a um, progression mm-hmm. of the behavior. So I thought about it for a long time, and I, I, for me, I could not pinpoint the first time. And I also realized that very often, I mean, as I'm sure if there's anybody that listened to that, well, I'm, I think there's people that listen to it that had seen me in my most skillful, abusive state like it it legitimately it's a skill to be able to use words to kind of slice someone up and and very often it felt like sometimes people would watch it like it was a show which was also rewarding and reinforcing the behavior but my my wife at the time she would sick me on customer service people or she would sick me on uh, managers at restaurants or and it was like, oh, let me let me open up my fucking bag of tricks and let me let me get into character. Mm-hmm. And I even I talked about it. I can't remember if I talked about it on a podcast or not, but I would even I realized in my career that if I was if I was angry at the person and I began chewing their ass, I would very quickly lose control of what the fuck I was doing. And it would just start you know, self perpetuating and just amping the fuck up. I eventually learned and I thought I was clever and probably until I'm processing this now, I thought I was clever. What I would do was if I wanted to talk to somebody about whatever it was, I would wait, calm down from being angry at him. And then what I would do is when I talked to him, I would pull anger from an unrelated source and use that as fuel for the ass chewing. But then I, then I wouldn't, their responses wouldn't feed the anger because I was pulling anger from a second source to create the show. So then I would be able to keep a cap on how angry I literally would pick the, the thing that made me angry. And I would almost like tailor, okay, how angry do I want to get at this guy and this ass chewing? And let me reach back into my experiences and find one that will get me just angry enough for the output that I want. And then I'll use that. But then the guy's response isn't going to feed that anger because it's, it's, it's separate. So I would, I would, I would do that. And I thought it was a clever thing, but really that's an indication that I was just abusive and toxic because I had to insulate my emotions from the process for fear of just utterly losing control. 
Um, but I think what it also speaks to is like that, that transition to an abusive or toxic person is, is so gradual. It's hard to find that line of demarcation where you go from a normal person with a normal response to a person that's just over the top abusive, you know, uh, and I, I, Spoil, I'm gonna. This would be a spoiler for a TV show that came out like ten years ago. So if you haven't seen it, tough shit. But uh, so if you have not seen uh, Breaking Bad, pause the podcast here uh, or skip like forty five seconds or something. But the reason that show was so fucking good is because on the first episode you have a school science teacher who is barely getting by, and he he's just struggling to get by, and he finds out he has cancer. And he doesn't have life insurance and he needs he figures out how much money his wife and kids will need in order to maintain their lifestyle, go to college and stay comfortable. Basically, he's trying to figure out the how much money would him as a as a provider of the family need when he dies. And he figures out it's something like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars and he starts cooking meth. Right. And the first episode, he's super relatable. You can clearly see him in all the people that are around you, you know, lower middle class. And and then each episode, he's he makes a decision. And it's not the perfect decision, but you as the viewer kind of watch it and go, uh, I could see that. Like, yeah, he needs Jesse because he uh, doesn't know how to distribute meth. That makes sense. You know, that cookie doesn't know how to get rid of it. He doesn't know how to sell it. Uh, or... He sees those two guys about to kill Jesse and runs him over with his Aztec. Like, yeah, he was saving his friend's life. I could see that. Or Jesse's, you know, obsessed with that girl who's into drugs and he's standing over the bed and he sees her choking on her vomit and dying. And he knows she's bad for Jesse. And you're like, I could see that. But then what happens is when you get to the end of the show, when you get to the final season, final episode, you look at him. And he's a fucking monster. And you realize that all along the way, you see the decisions he made. First of all, the first episode you identified with him because he was very, the character was very similar to you and I or, or any other regular American. And then every episode along the way, you see his decisions and you go, yeah, I could see that. I might do the same thing. And then at the end of the, ep end of the show, he's a fucking monster. And that's when you realize... I would be a monster too, because I see all the things he did. And I say that because when I try to find the time in my career where I became abusive and toxic, I, it's hard for like, it's just, just like, when did Walter White in Breaking Bad become a fucking monster? And you would have a real hard time picking out that time. I, I think he could be arguably when he found out he had cancer, right? That's when his survivor instinct kicked in. And each decision he made past that was that newly discovered survivor instinct. Another way to phrase it is he had a new competing interest that was that he felt was critical to survival. Mm -hmm. That's the survival instinct, which would now allow him to do things that he ordinarily wouldn't do because there was it really would have boiled down to the, there was a level of desperation right mm -hmm. and when a desperate person's going to do will probably do some terrible things mm -hmm. that's interesting right i mean 
if we take the thing that you said last time about so you know a toxic person is is some or a maintainer is carrying around this wad of anger right and we've talked about like that's taught that toxicity was taught you can word it in a way that like that person is wounded right they're wounded and they're trying to make themselves feel better by damaging other people whether they realize it or not so you know walter white figuring out he's got cancer he was wounded his ego his everything i mean he second guessed his life as well you know he what was it somebody else he wished he had married or you know all these second guesses and stuff like that so it, it wounded more than just his physical health but uh his emotional and mental health as well yeah so when you asked that question i thought of there was a few incident instances in my career but i can't say that that these were like the catalyst. So I remember when I was a very, very, very young airman, we had a guy in our unit who was just a jerk. I mean, but it was like 1998 and most staff sergeants and above were complete assholes. And I had been on day shift the whole time. And then I, I moved to swing shift and my first night, uh, this staff sergeant had told me, hey, go get the tow stuff because we had to tow a jet. And me being a day shift airman up, up until that day, I went into support and I got a nine JG and mm -hmm. I walked out the door and I came up to them and they were hooking up the tow bar and I showed up with it mm -hmm. and he started going, uh, Hey, stupid. Like, what the fuck are you doing with a nine JG? We need wands. We're towing. And I was like, Oh, I didn't realize he's like, how the fuck do you not know that you need, you know, a wands at night? It's a fucking night tow job. Like how the fuck, are you in the Air Force? How are you how are you here today when you don't even know that? And he was really coming down on me. And I stopped him. And I said, first of all, you're not gonna ever fucking call me hey idiot again. You're gonna call me Airman McGee or McGee. Those are the only two ways you can fucking refer to me. Second of all, I've never done a night tow job, and it's your responsibility to train me. So if I show up in the nine JG, that's your fucking failure, period. And for me, it was like I'm not going to tolerate this, which arguably he was being abusive and I was being the, re the receptor of it. And I had stood up and said, I'm, I'm not going to fucking, this is not going to be the world I'm in. And that was, you know, what I thought was a, a just thing. I was pushing back against something that was like unfair. And there was, and I think he ended up giving me a little bit of respect out of that, but I kind of didn't pay attention because I didn't have any respect for him. And then there was another time where a friend of mine had attempted suicide um, in the Air Force. And I found out and I had gone to work and I was really upset. They were downtown in the hospital in a coma. And I went up to my expediter, Joe Kane, who I loved. And I was a A1C. I went up to Joe Kane. I said, hey, Joe, and we we're so shorthanded. I said, hey, I know we're shorthanded. I'm not trying to leave early, but can you put me on a slick C model so that way it'll be down? And then as soon as it lands, I'll jope it and gas it. And then I got I got it after a second go, and I'll, I'll run to the hospital. He's like, yeah, man, no problem. So I caught the jet, second go. I gassed it, covered it up real quick, and then I ran inside, and swing shift was in roll call. And... I popped in real quick. And that was back in the day where you knew who you're, I was, I was on the flagship too. So I knew exact, actually, yeah, my, it was my jet. You know, I knew who my turnover was going to be because we were both assistants on the flagship. So it was always me and Mark Turk. I was on day shift. Mark was on swing shift. And I popped in to roll call real quick. They were doing it in the office. It was a really small office, but there was like eight people or something. 
I popped in. I was like, hey, Turk, uh, I got to run. I got something to take care of, but the jet's all taken care of. I did a campy polish, but I didn't get to cams. Can you do cams on it? He's like, sure, man, no problem. And I started to turn around to walk out. And the flight chief, the swing shift flight chief, who was such an angry, pessimistic dude, had stopped me and go, hey, where do you think you're going? You need to do cams on that. And I turned around, I said, unfortunately, I don't have time. And I turned to Turk and I said, hey, is it a problem if you just update the canopy polishing cams? He's like, yeah, man, it's no, no big deal. I was like, okay, thanks. And I started to turn to walk away and the flight chief's like, see, that's a problem. He was, he had like a nasally voice. He's like, that's a problem with you day shifters. You're always turning shit over and we're not here to do your work for you and all this stuff. And I said, I have to go. I've been released. He's like, you haven't been released by me. I was like, I was released by day shift. He's like, well, you're still here and they're not. And you're going to do that, that canopy polish. I said, you know, you don't know how to fucking talk to people. And just because you outrank us doesn't mean you get to treat us like this. And I started going off on him and I heard my supervisor who was a staff sergeant. This guy I was talking to was a tech sergeant behind me say, it's about time somebody told that motherfucker off. It's a shame it had to be an airman. So as soon as I heard that, as he was saying it to somebody else, I was fucking like reinvigorated. And I started really coming down on him. And I looked around and I saw like everybody mouth agape as this E3 was shitting on this E6. And um, I said, all right, everybody out of the office, you don't need to be here for this. And I literally cleared the office myself, closed the door. And then uh, once I got in talking to him, I told him that my friend had was in the hospital and had attempted suicide and, He's like, oh, I didn't know. I'm like, I didn't want you to know. I don't want you to know anything. You're, you're a terrible fucking person. And I'm really upset that I have to tell you this so I can just leave and see my friend. And I walked out and my shirt was out there, the best shirt I'd ever had. And he said, sit down right there, little brother. And I sat down next to the door and he fucking walked in right after me. And he just, he rode this dude's skin up and down the fucking walls and then he walked out and then we went, I ended up going to the hospital, but it's like those two incidents, I was yelling and I was, I was learning those abusive skills, but I was learning, learning it for a just and moral reason to push back against abuse itself. And then by 2002, it's like, so this is 2002 must've been when the transition happened, but I don't remember it. I just don't remember it. I remember I had a doc chief in Korea who came up to me one time and said, hey, you need to change how you are because you're going to chase away all the people that love you because of how you treat people. And I'm like, I'm like, this is just at work. You don't know me at home. And, you know, you don't know anything about me. You don't know anything. And it was very much a, he could see the writing on the wall of what I was becoming, much like probably everybody else in maintenance. And he was trying to give me a speed bump to slow me down. And a lot of times you, you can't see the forest for the trees when you're in the thick of it. And I totally blew him off. And I didn't really even appreciate the conversation until probably the last six or seven months when I really started thinking about my contribution to other people's harm. So I don't know when it was mm -hmm. in that year, but it had to have been there for a person to come up and say, you're going to destroy a lot of people and friends with the way you act. So it had to have been there. That answers my uh, follow-up question is just like, when did you gain the, uh, how was it? The quickness of the tongue, I guess that would be the yeah. expression. Like, but it sounds like you've always had that since 
day one, even prior to coming in the Air Force? Um, may, I don't know about the quickness of the tongue. I think certainly not to the degree I have now. I would say I probably had a knack for it, mm -hmm. but it was very much honed throughout mm -hmm. my career. Um, but I certainly never lacked the courage mm -hmm. when I saw something that was unjust to stand up and just torch every fucking thing or scorched earth. Mm -hmm. I got you. Which is certainly noble mm -hmm. when you have a noble reason. Mm -hmm. But if your reason isn't noble, man, that's a totally different fucking beast. Yeah. Yeah. Those eight reasons started turning from noble or at least misconstrued what noble was. And what did you say, 2002? Yeah. A good amount of time to hone your skill, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, culminating as a as a pro super, and I think I talked about this in my episode on squadron leadership. So initially I equated my toxicity to being a product of being in production, that mm -hmm. the pressure of the job would just bring out this horrible side of me. But then when I had that conversation with Scott Frisco on toxic leadership, I realized that I was in my happiest command climate and I was a section chief and I was also abusive, mm -hmm. which meant it was not job specific. It was the whole maintenance culture. And mm -hmm. I'm not trying to also justify or excuse my behavior or find a, a reason, a justification for why I was terrible. It's more of, I'm going to admit I was terrible mm -hmm. and I don't think I'm a terrible person. So mm -hmm. therefore, if I, if I was terrible and I don't think I'm a terrible person, which by the way, every human being thinks they're not a terrible person, even the fucking terrible ones, spoiler, I wanted to find out what contributed to me being terrible. And that mm -hmm. was really when I started doing the deep dive on maintenance culture and trying to explore that. Okay. Well, then I, I told you some of my thoughts about it. Like, you know, we keep, we were talking about toxicity is taught and like what starts this teaching. Like, what do you, what did you think of my thoughts on that with uh, the service before self basically? I think you should run through your thoughts because I'm, okay. I'm interviewing you. Although. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I got in the, I, I apologize. I, I was scared. I was going to do that. I, I, I like asking. The, the no, questions. you're good. And I like talking, but mm -hmm. I prefer. <laughs> you to do uh, the bulk if possible yeah i know i was just i don't know i got interested about your thoughts and I was... no no and i will we will but go ahead and uh lay out your thoughts and what made you think of that so last time you asked me um what was maintenance culture to me mm -hmm. and um you know you laid out i don't know a good bulk of information and it was you know definitely all parts of it and the only thing i really had to say was that you know, trying to be positive was that, you know, work didn't always suck, which is still true. Yep. But I got to thinking about it and I ran a bunch of circles in my head and then it basically came down to me thinking that it is, the maintenance culture is probably the biggest department because I'm, if not the biggest department of the Air Force where there you see the embodiment of suburbs before self. And that's not to say that there aren't like, small regiments of like special forces and stuff like that inside the, you know, you get the PJs and security forces. I don't know which one's bigger security forces or maintenance. I know they have pretty similar. I think, maintenance, I think maintenance is the biggest. I really do. Yeah. But as far as just like the, the bulk size of people, maintenance culture is going to be the biggest one that has the actual embodiment of service before self. And that's not to say that not every air force member upholds that core value, but where it's just forced upon you and consumes your life that's where it's happening i think and uh, that's what i would say maintenance culture is like the biggest part of it like of the three 
core values. You know, obviously, integrity is a lot of part of it. But yeah, service before self, that's what's pushed upon. And um, my thoughts from there was like, that's what's teaching toxicity because if you teach somebody to deprioritize themselves, that's going to lead to anger, resentment, just unhealthy life physically. If you're not prioritizing yourself at some level, then, I mean, I don't see any other answer than, or any other consequence than depression, anger, anxiety, and all these other different types of mental issues that will result in somebody being toxic. I think that's right. And I think there's a lot of interplay, like I've kind of detailed, I think, in Compliance Culture with Stromsky and there's other podcasts kind of sprinkled throughout. Like the Air Force core values are, are uh, you know, I, I argue that service before self is just a, a veiled workaholic culture. Um, but certainly integrity is a fantastic core value, you know, mm -hmm. and being excellent in all you do. That's also a good core value. Like nobody mm -hmm. wants to be fucking mediocre. Nobody mm -hmm. like grows up and be like, you know, like I, I want to work at 7-Eleven on the mid shift. That's nobody's aspiration. I'm not trying to bash anybody in the service industry because, you know, mm -hmm. the truth be told, you kept the world going for the last year. So props to you. Mm -hmm. um, but excellence in all you do and, and integrity those are really, really noble goals that any human should be pursuing anyway. Mm. But, and then service before self, arguably, I agree. I think there's also a certain amount of value and reward in pursuing a goal that's more important than your own individual self. Obviously, yes. Like that's a great way to find purpose in your life. Mm -hmm. But when you take all three together, mm -hmm when you take integrity, especially if you view it through the lens of maintenance, because mm -hmm. maintenance has all three of those are very much competing mm -hmm. for the top spot, just the nature, because they're so interconnected. Mm -hmm. In order to be excellent in maintenance, you got to have really high fucking integrity, much like we talked about with um, the guy that pointed out the FO in the engine bay. It took a lot of integrity for him to come forward with that, even though he knew I hated him. And excellence, you can't be anything but excellent in aircraft maintenance because if you're not, someone's going to fucking die. Mm -hmm. Either the pilot or somebody on the ground or whatever. And then service before self is is important because your your actions are serving a higher sort of interest. You know, allowing a pilot to go downrange and, and protect America's interests either at home or overseas. I mean, just think about the pilots that were flying F-16s around on September 11th that weren't loaded with, with missiles, but mm -hmm. they were willing to fly their F-16 into a civilian airliner, killing 200 civilians on board and themselves for the sake of preserving more lives on the ground. Like none of those are bad things, but when you take each one of those and recognize they're all interrelated, and then you start starving that environment of resources, you have an aging fleet, you don't have enough people. The mm -hmm. people you do have are under experienced mm -hmm. where if you do your job by the book, everything takes longer and your weekends go away. Your family time goes away. Your boss wants to know what the fuck's taking so long. You're rushed. If you cut corners, 
nobody like dimes you out. Mm-hmm. So like the the being disingenuous or dishonest with your maintenance is implicitly rewarded because you're not punished when you cut a corner and everybody cuts certain corners. And, you know, I always argued that, that aircraft maintenance in the air force makes no sense because if I worked at a factory making a hundred license plates and I needed a hundred pieces of metal, you know, going in to make a hundred license plates, and then they cut me to only 50 pieces of metal no, no commercial or industrial facility would be like, I'm, I still expect you to make a hundred fucking license plates. It would be like, okay, if you only resource me for 50 license plates, we're going to reduce to making 50 fucking license plates. Mm-hmm. But the Air Force, you know, the manning and the experience and the age of the fleet fucking ebbs and flows like crazy. And they still expect the exact same fucking output. Mm-hmm. So excellence in all you do is great when you're resource for excellence, but when you're not, it's somebody needs to go, Hey, yeah, you can't be excellent because we haven't done what we need to do for you. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen. There's not a squadron commander that goes, yeah, you can be mediocre mm-hmm. because the air force hasn't given us what we need for the, you know, it's ebbed and flowed and, you know, we're about to allow more people to leave the air force. So hopefully general Kelly at uh, air force a one isn't as stupid as he was in 2014, but you never know. So when you have, integrity that is only when it's convenient which Mm -hmm. defies the definition of integrity because integrity is the whole point is it's you're doing the right thing when it's not convenient if excellence is required all the time you're not resourced for excellence and so when you when you filter those core values through the the current maintenance i say current i mean i haven't been in in uh three years now so current as from 2014 to 2018 plus any information i've gotten from the field since then seems like uh the manning is coming back but a lot of people are inexperienced so it's still not where it needs to be and the fleet's certainly older mm-hmm. when you're not resource for excellence and integrity is just a buzzword and it's not an actual culture then that service before self very quickly becomes abusive it's no mm-hmm. longer you're pursuing a noble goal you're a cog in the wheel and you're expected to sacrifice of yourself for this machination. Yeah, it seems like a no matter the noble the cause, like because I'm not, I don't want to be misunderstood to think that I'm just dissing that core value because it is and could be a very good core value. But it just seems like more likely, from my point of view anyway, and it just looks like you're sharing it as well, is that it's just a blanket answer for the abuse that we suffer. And that's, I mean, oh, I don't know. I was thinking about it. It's like you were talking about the shifts that you were working in, and like everybody's been through the long shifts, right? And I don't think anybody in the maintenance cult in, in maintenance culture would mind, you know, a Friday here or there of a 12, 13 hour shift to keep the weekend duty out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, just something like regular, but not consistent, not constant, right? Because that's what that's what breaks you, right? It's, it's the two years straight of 12 uh, hour shifts, you know, weekend duties and just, and then basically, Oh, you're tired and you failed this inspection, you know, fuck you. Here's QA court. You're a piece of shit. Yep. Like, really? Really? Okay. Yep. That's what, and that, that to me was, I, I'm sure I told that story another time. I remember one time I was a fairly young seven level and I had an expediter that I wasn't too fond of that. He was just kind of weak, weak willed. 
and I was at my, I think 11 and a half hour mark mm-hmm. and an engine had just been rolled back for something. And he's like, Hey, can you go knock out that engine bay real quick at my 11 and a half hour mark? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hey, I'm at my 11 and a half hour mark. He's like, yeah, just get over there and see what you can get done. And I, and I was like, okay, so I'm going to go over there and I'm going to sit on a fucking stool and like, I'm going to rest the, I'm going to hold the flashlight this and just rest my hand on it. And I'm going to stare for 30 fucking minutes. This is the, this is the mental prison I'm in for 30 minutes. And if I can do that, stand on my head. And I was staring at like the CSD area where, you know, it's just a spaghetti of lines and stuff where you can find a bunch of fod or whatever. And he came over like 15 minutes later. He's like, is it good to sign off? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I just got here and it's only been 15 minutes. He's like, yeah, but we really need to get this done because midshift wants to stuff the motor and, you know, and then he came back over 10 minutes later. He's like, hey, you're almost at your 12. Can you sign off this engine bay? And I had done like a real quick, like flashlight through looking for anything obvious. I was like, fine. And I just fucking signed it off. And then uh, the motor was only rolled back. So it was right to the heat shields. Like it was still covering the heat shields and I went home and I, it failed because a heat shield screw was sticking out like a half inch or something like maybe threads, not even engaged, but if so, barely engaged. And I was going to get an LOR uh, from the, from the AMU chief who hated me anyway. He was the same AMU chief where I would go in every night and type in his password wrong three times. So he'd lock him out in the morning. So it was that guy. He never knew I did it. And I was getting an LOR and he asked me, he was very like, it was very much what you were talking about. Like, Hey, you're a piece of shit. Like basically you weren't excellent. And mm-hmm. he had asked me, you know, should I still have X's, which is such a bizarre thing because as a red X person, you know, that your red X's is the, one of the primary sources of all your work stress, your long hours and stuff. But you also latch on to that status and that pride and the, if you lose your ex, it's the shame that your once peers now have to pick up your slack of doing your job for you. And I was like, no, I, I'm going to, I want to keep my exes. He's like, because, you know, the quality of maintenance is so low. I don't think I'm, I'm debating whether getting rid of them. And, you know, why did you miss that screw that last night or the whatever night that was a couple nights before? And I couldn't say because my expediter fucking... Because A, that's, you don't want to dime out your boss. And B, that's not actually a good answer because you're mm-hmm. expected to push back against the, the rush culture, even though it's so hard to fucking do. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, the motor was only rolled back. I only looked at the exposed bay and I, I didn't have to look at it. And he said, well, QA found it. You should have found it. And I said, well, QA was a better fucking inspector than me that day. And the reality was, is QA also had more than 20 minutes to look it Mm -hmm. over. It's like, I I really think most maintainers want to be good maintainers and do the best work. Mm -hmm. But the story I'm telling, there's probably not a maintainer out there that hasn't experienced multiple instances that are fucking hyper similar where they wanted to do good, but their boss rushed them. And then they got left holding the fucking bag. And they couldn't even say what happened. Mm-hmm. And that it, it, it literally, this story gets me angry right now, just because mm-hmm. I'm I'm refeeling the the tension between the truth 
mm-hmm. and loyalties and self-interest because the reality is in maintenance if you go against your tribe mm-hmm. you're fucked like how many times have you seen that guy on swing shift who is the other mm-hmm. i don't even mean like the other race i mean we have we have our tribe of people that have been jobbing together for months and maybe that person's been with us for months too but he's not a team player he doesn't mm-hmm. like the same things we like He's not in a smoke pit with us. You can just tick off all these things that they aren't a part of. And at some point they become on the outside of the team looking in and their experience on shift is radically fucking different than those that are inside the tribe. So very often there's a tension between the truth of what happened and loyalties to your tribe. And nine times out of 10, loyalty to your tribe is going to take precedence that that becomes your new truth mm-hmm. instead of the actual truth which also goes to uh that works against integrity yeah i mean you're talking about like good old boy clubs there it sounds like i think it goes beyond good old boy clubs because sometimes it feels to me that good old boy clubs are based more on who gets along personality wise mm-hmm. but there's like if someone's lazy they're, they're going to be on the outside looking in real fucking quick. If they're not volunteering to help somebody take off a ventral or if they're doing all these things, they're not going to be part of the tribe anymore. Even if even if somebody's weird or, you know, just bizarre, but they're a hard worker, they're going to stay in that tribe. And it's not necessarily a good old boys club. It's a you don't take you don't take away my time because you're you're stealing oxygen and i have to pick up your slack if if i don't very much goes to the story you told last time about the guy sitting at the table mm-hmm. when you when you were like walking around doing stuff and he what everybody you i think you specifically said everyone is outside working and you're in here inside mm-hmm. and so clearly he was not in the tribe no of his of his own making in fairness right mm-hmm. but it's like and we were already talking about how he had a very hard time being on the line. Mm-hmm. And now he's outside. The, he, I think he's always been outside the tribe, too. I don't think he's ever been invited in because of just the way he was. So how much harder, I wonder how much harder it would be in aircraft maintenance if you were not part of the whole, if you were not mm-hmm. part of the team. Yeah. Have you ever been not a part of the team? I've always been a part of the team. Yeah. Yeah, I've been not a part of the team. How'd that feel? Pretty bad because I was trying pretty hard mm. to be a part of the team, right? Like, um, I've never been to, like, when we talked about that kid specifically that I told stories about, my anger spurred up in, the, and up in those moments so much just because, not because of his lack of ability, but his lack of proactiveness, mm-hmm. his lack of wanting to be better, right? Because I've been there. I've been the subpar, mediocre mechanic, right? And... I busted my hump. Like I failed a bunch. I talked about that last time, mm-hmm. but like being outside of the go-to group, as far as like, I can count on this person to get, you know, A and B tasks done. Like that sucked. That sucked bad. Uh, Cause then you just, it, it takes on, like, I think what you were talking about, I confuse it for good old boy club. Cause you know, when you can't do anything productive or at least you're known as that person, Nobody likes you anyway, yep. no matter what your personality is. Yep. You know what I mean? So, you know, trying to get along outside of the office or outside of the uh, 
phase dock, it it didn't help, right? I mean, there was no, and it got to such a point where the things that I was accused of failing were no longer even my own personal failings. Mm. I remember getting chewed out and told that my staff driver, which I just put on, was going to get taken away from me because a panel came off of, in flight of a phase aircraft we just released. Mm-hmm. Comes out that that didn't even happen. The panel was found by the super doing the ER oh. with the screws sticking out. And my whole argument to even begin was like, I don't understand why you're yelling at me. I didn't even sign the panel off. Mm. You know what I mean? This was a close up after phase. I didn't put the panel on. I didn't physically put the panel on. I didn't go by and look at it to see if it was on. I didn't sign it off. Why are you throwing this at me? Like literally was telling me I was going to lose a strike over a false scenario. So that's like how far outside of the tribe I've been. And that's like when I stopped, like really stopped caring. Yeah. That's interesting. So you also talked about the four pillars. Yeah. In your messages. Uh, mm-hmm. And I want to say this came around. I'm trying to remember what rank I was. It was probably around 2012 or 13, maybe, is when the four pillars, the first time I got briefed on the four pillars in the Air Force. Does that sound right to you? I don't know. I remember kind of always being there. I don't know. And I've been in, I mean, I've been in, uh, sorry, what would have it? Um, I joined in 2007 and I don't know. I, I can, can kind of remember four pillars for some time. Maybe you're more accurate. I don't know. It might be. It might be that they introduced it at the beginning of BMT and tactical training, which is mm-hmm. might be when you saw it in 2007, 2008, and mm-hmm. it may not have been validated. So it mm-hmm. didn't make it out to the Air Force at Hull until later. That might be it. But I, mm-hmm. I remember them, and I remember. I think I was a, a tech. I'm, I'm sure I was a tech. So that would have been between 2008 and two. 2014, 2013. So it was, I think it was somewhere in that time frame. It's the first time I saw it. I'll say that. So what are the four pillars? Because you said, I think you said offline to me, the four pillars is actually a pretty good model, right? It is. I mean, the you get the four pillars of health. It's being the emotional health, mental health, physical health, and spiritual health. I mean, when you think about somebody's health, they're in these four aspects, you know, and to be able to take care of yourself within those four aspects, you'd probably be a healthy, happy person. Pretty accurate from my point of view anyway. So like when I got out and I started focusing on myself, right, these I started to look at the areas where I was lacking in this. It fell into them in either one of these four categories. So how well does the Air Force do in promoting a culture that supports those four things? I, I don't think it does at all. <laughs> I think it preaches it. I think it says, hey, uh, this is really good for you, but uh, do it on your own time, which you barely have. Yeah, that's kind of the Air Force's solution to everything, right? Mm-hmm. Do it on your own time. Yeah. Because, I mean, the the most obvious to me is the physical. Mm-hmm. The Air Force is saying, in order for you to be a balanced and happy, healthy person, you need to exercise. You need to take mm-hmm. care of your body. And much like we talked about offline before, how does changing a shift three times in one week support your physical well-being? How does 
working weekend duty as a swing shifter where your circadian rhythm is aligned to you going to work at seven o'clock at night and now you come in at seven o'clock at night leave at 10 o'clock at night and they expect you to go to sleep and be up at 6 30 in the morning to go into weekend duty it's not a thing or you know from 2003 to 2007 i want to say we had pt during the duty day which i i hated right but in hindsight, I certainly appreciated that I had outside of my control four and a half hours a week where I had to do something that kept me physically fit. And at my unit, initially, I think they tried to do it on the back end, but Super would always end up working us 12. And they're like, hey, you can't make us do PT. That brings us like 13 and a half, 14 hours. It's not okay. So they started doing PT at the beginning of the shifts. So that way it would um, hamstring production you know, an hour and a half sh shorting them, which they got really mad at. Mm -hmm. And then the Air Force said commander should allocate an hour and a half, three times a week, which when your resource restricted becomes, yeah, that's going to be the first fucking thing I drop because I'm not required to do it. And so like the physical well-being, never mind the fact, I think I posted an article a few months ago about guy, sheet metal guys, LO guys in, in a guard or reserve base down, I think, Mississippi or Alabama who were getting cancer because they were being exposed to this toxic chemical and their, their command wasn't doing anything about it. And again, nobody can sue because the air force is protected from lawsuits. Like does the military really care about our physical well-being and how, what would that look like? It would look like if we were given time to work out, if we were mm -hmm. given what we need for, for safety, if we, if we weren't, being drug around from shift to shift to shift to shift. You know, I don't know. It's hard to say what the Air Force prioritizes. It's hard to say what the Air Force provides, but I can look at the output and go, they're not meeting that pillar. Is that fair? Of course. I mean, if you look at the, uh, basically the entirety of our conversation thus far, I mean, we can knock out emotional and mental as well. I mean, it's, it's just not there. Uh, I will say that, uh, you know, after deployment, you do have mandatory mental health visits and that's because they take that idea of being in an extreme environment working 12 hours six days a week in you know a war zone as basically damaging to possibly damaging to your mental health and so they want to check on you you know what i mean you got a you got a mandatory visit when you get back you got a mandatory visit a few weeks later then a few months later you know but other than that they they think that if you're just stateside or just at a, uh, you know, your operating base, your normal operating base, you must be fine. You must be okay. But uh, uh, the statistics that you've talked about before shows otherwise, obviously. Yep. So, I mean, we've, we've lived it, we've seen it. So I don't, I don't, I wouldn't personally need a statistic to tell me that people in maintenance culture are suffering emotionally and mentally. You know, and that's that's probably the crux of fucking ninety percent of what I do between my writing, uh, my FOIA requests that I keep getting stonewalled on. You know, I hypothesize that the data is available to show that maintenance culture is not healthy. Mm -hmm. I really feel like you know. So my my overall thread for what I think is driving the suicide problem is 
you know, if you reach all the way back to 2006, we created an open shred. This is specific to crew chief, but this certainly applies to maintenance in some degree. Open a shred, which diluted your experience on that particular airframe. And then you shifted a bunch of people to heavy. So you had a diluted, inexperienced seven level core. And then you split up some people and your experience went to heavies. And then we did, you know, I, I have data that shows the fleet wasn't healthy in 2010 to 2014. We weren't meeting our maintenance metrics then. And then we cut a shitload of fucking people in 2014. So then we didn't have enough people, plus the people we did have were inexperienced. And then fast forward four years, General Mattis says he wants these particular airframes reach an 80% readiness mandate for MC rate. And then you, you, know, you don't have a lot of people, and then you started to recoup some people. Those are all three levels, and those take time away from seven levels. And then people started blowing their brains out. And I, if you were, if the air, if I, man, if I was the chief master in the Air Force or the chief of staff of the Air Force or, or anybody in the Air Force that had any ability to pull some fucking data, which by the way, I noticed there are some people in the Pentagon that listen to this podcast because uh, I can see locations of downloads and listens. So here's my ask to you. If you have this power and you don't have to fucking give it to me, look at alcohol-related incidents that have been, look at the trends of alcohol-related incidents by AFSC. Look at the trends of mental health referrals by AFSC. Look at suicides by AFSC and, uh, and track that to manning levels, fleet health, ops tempo, because also in that time I gave, the amount of flying hours stays relatively static throughout. So even it goes back to the factory analogy of, you know, our supplies waver, but our output is required to be the same. Like if our flying hours maintain the same amount from 2010 to 2020 and our manning and experience fluctuated wildly, you're probably going to see, you know, an inverse indication in our mental health referrals, alcohol related incidents, article 15s. And I don't know, like there's no fucking way some fucking has been retired master sergeant that spent most of his career in AETC can fucking piece together this theory and people at the Pentagon who are fucking experts on this haven't. So uh, if it hasn't been pieced together, first of all, shame on you. You're stealing from the fucking taxpayers if you haven't done it. And second of all, if you have done it, that's almost more disconcerting because what are we doing about it? Mm-hmm. Like figuring out the, the, the health of an AFSC or, or just the two A's in general, two A's and two W's in general, is probably not that fucking hard with as, as much data. I just don't know if it's insulated from each other. Like, no one's looking at sorties and ARIs together to go, what the fuck's going on here? I think we don't do a good job with mental health. I think it's a box check. I think the Air Force doesn't want to know about the mental health problem. I think it's a, let me hide under the blankets because if I don't see it, I don't have to worry about it. And the reality mm-hmm. is if that information isn't getting outside the Air Force, then the Air Force doesn't have to be accountable for that treatment and that behavior or that mismanagement or any number of fucking things. And it may not all be the Air Force's problem. The reality is 2014's drawdown was a mechanism of sequestration and also continuing resolutions that are always 10% lower than the, than the, than the continued budget. So we essentially got a 20% funding cut, which I'll probably post it up. I'm trying to work on a massive article, but unfortunately I have this thing called law school that conflicts with my time management skills. You know, I, I found the letter from the, the, all the chairman of the Joint Chiefs signed in 2013 that said, you're going to create a hollow force that can't meet your needs, Congress. You need to fucking fund us. 
or else in in a short amount of time, we're going to be incapable of doing what you need to do for national defense. And oh, by the way, the five fucking four star generals that knew the most about their service were right. So that's exactly what the fuck happened. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily all the Air Force's fault. They're they're dealt a budgetary hand. Yeah. And they they like they don't get to spend more money than Congress allots. There's there's not mm -hmm. a lot they can do there. I mean, that's my, I guess, long answer to the the mental health pillar. I think, and I'm interested, I'm going to have Dr. Smith on the podcast again. We're going to talk about um, postpartum and, and, and sort of pregnancy. It's going to be part of my two-part talking about pregnancy with an OBGYN and a mental health professional. I'll probably dip my toe in a little bit to this too as well. Mm -hmm. But I really feel like the Air Force's mental health is is very much a cousin of their medical system. Mm -hmm. where it's symptom mitigation, not mm -hmm. solving the problem. And for me, it's really frustrating because I think you can trace a lot of the mental health diagnosis and problems to how people are treated by the Air Force. So it really frustrates me that the Air Force throws up his hands like this is an unsolvable problem while, you know, with one hand, while the other hand, they're fucking beating people mm -hmm. professionally. Have you ever uh, uh, tried out the Air Force's mental health? services? Oh, yeah. I went to mental health almost throughout my career. Wow. Initially, and then I talked about it. I can't remember. I think oh, I talked about it uh, with Dr. Smith. And uh, as I told Mike, this time I'm going to be uh, a, a responsible podcaster and I have my episode list up so I can actually give episode numbers. It was in episode 13. I talked about how um, I had a family member that told, told me they were going to commit suicide in a month or two. And I was under investigation for a privacy act violation with abusive leadership at Holloman. And I was a lead pro super and I was geographically separated from my family. So like I had like these four huge pressures on me and I didn't, I wasn't feeling, I mean, I'm sure it was manifesting as abusive. I'm sure. Uh, but I wasn't feeling like suicidal, but I, I called mental health. I was like, I just need to fucking like work through some of this shit. And, you know, they canceled my assignment to Osan immediately, which that pissed me off because Osan was my escape from the environment that I thought was abusive. Although, um, thankfully, I found out right after that assignment to Osan got canceled that the chief that was the the principal micromanager and piece of shit to me had also gotten an assignment to Osan and would, would have been there at the same time. So I would have been trapped in Korea with him. So that probably would have made the news. But um, I went, I just needed to fucking just work through some things. Um, and it was helpful. But oh, yeah. it was a positive experience. Except for the fact that it canceled an assignment when everybody's yeah. like, there's no career impacts. It's like, and I, yeah. my assignment got canceled for making an appointment. Mm -hmm. There was no diagnosis. There was nothing. Mm -hmm. Like I made the appointment. I was driving back from Phoenix to Holloman and I called and made the appointment with mental health around um, Lordsburg. And as I was passing Holloman, so what is that? Like three hours later, I think. Three hours later, I got a phone call from assignment saying my assignment to Osan had been canceled because I had made a mental health appointment. I was like, well, I could cancel the mental health appointment. He's like, too late. And I'm like, well, fuck, man. So, okay. I mean, I had a positive experience with the provider, mm -hmm. but over, and, but also mine was a very specific thing. I just needed to unload all the shit that was going on and then just soundboard, you know, should, should I be worried or, you know, this is what I'm, I'm, I mean, it was a very surreal feeling to be going to work every day 
and then going home and making sure my blues were ready for the article 15 I was expecting because I had done something legal to protect a stranger from a commander corrupting the military justice system. But I was basically waiting to get in trouble for doing the right thing. And for me, that was a really difficult position to be in mentally and, mm -hmm. to, and to kind of struggle with. So, but I want to go back to the four pillars. I don't, I'm not sure if I'm, I, I maybe just, I, I forgot, but I, I very likely didn't pay much attention to that briefing. So I was very sour on the Air Force anyway. But it, it talks about, we talked about physical, we talked about mental kind of, but I don't know what, I didn't know what emotional health was. So I kind of looked it up as you were going through the four pillars. And I found this on, on the internet, and I'm just going to read it off real quick. It mm -hmm. says, after defining mental health, you might think emotional health might just be the same as its emotional component. However, emotional health encompasses more than just the state of your feelings. Rather, emotional health involves your ability to manage and express your emotions in a mature and appropriate manner. <laughs> familiar. Sounds familiar. It does. And it makes me think that that pillar is completely missing from aircraft maintenance by far. Depending on, you know, individual experience, how long you've been in the maintenance culture, if it's still there or, or maybe it's halfway there or if it's just completely knocked out by now. Yeah. Yeah. You probably show up with that pillar. Like mm -hmm. I probably showed up to aircraft maintenance having a handle on my emotions generally, even though I was a young man, which, you know, it's, you, you don't have a huge toolkit. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's where military bearing comes in. I mean, that's really the whole point of military bearing, right? Is you need to control your emotions, mm -hmm. but it's control, not manage. Those are two different things. Like when you talk about military bearing, you're taught that even though you're experiencing many emotions, you will not portray them. I should not be able to tell what emotion you're experiencing between joy, misery, sadness, anger, rage, you know, whatever. I should be able to look at you and not be able to tell one from the other. Yep. That's pretty much what military bearing is, right? You're just stoic. Mm -hmm. You're just there. So at the outset, the military is already teaching you how not to have that emotional pillar. Because it's talking about how you need to press down and mask your emotions. That's not mm -hmm. managing or expressing them in a healthy way, healthier, mature way. No, of course not. Of course not. No, I mean, I think you had a good point there with uh, controlling or versus managing, right? Yeah. I think that's what you said, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if they just flat out say, or if somebody is trying to explain military bearing to you and they just flat out say, suffocate it. Yep. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean even if they don't say that, I mean, what is somebody going to fall to? If you don't teach somebody how to manage or if they're not taught, uh, it's not, I won't, I won't say it's the Air Force's responsibility to teach how to manage your emotions, right? Like, it's kind of an individual responsibility, but if you just shove down military bearing down someone's throat, like I don't see any other avenue. Like we, we talked about with toxicity being not necessarily the shortest path, but it's definitely the easiest path. Yep. Suffocating emotions is definitely going to be the easiest path versus, okay, I can keep a straight face right now. And then later I'm going to, in a healthy manner, vent my emotions about this. Well, I think it's also a symptom of, you know, you were in the Air Force long enough, certainly as a supervisor long enough. It's it's radically different to supervise someone to join the Air Force at 17 and a half mm -hmm. and someone to join the Air Force at 25, 26, right? Of course. Like a 25, 26 year old, you're like, oh, they've got 
everything mm-hmm. handled. And even though they're an A1C, I can have them lead maintenance just mm-hmm. because they're just stable. Stable is probably the best word, either stable professionally, emotionally, mentally, experience-wise. They're just, they have this broad base where you can just mm-hmm. set things on expectations and things. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's interesting that you said the, it's not the Air Force's responsibility, it's the individual responsibility. I, I disagree with that because, you know, again, I'm not a doctor. This isn't medical advice. It's not legal advice. I'm not really giving any advice. Uh, I'm talking to people and apparently there's people that like to hear it. So uh, that's what we're doing now. And a, a human's prefrontal cortex is not formed until like 25, 26 years old. It's why your car insurance goes down at 26. It's why ATC requires you to say what the fuck you're doing on long weekends if you're under the age of 26. The prefrontal cortex has a lot to do with judgment and impulse control. So like if the Air Force wants to let 17 and a half year olds join, I think there's a fucking burden on the Air Force to also help finish developing them in this way and giving them a little bit of fucking breathing room to struggle with managing their emotions because mm-hmm. the reality is physiologically through human development they have a much harder time managing their emotions compared to a master sergeant and i think what you do is if you teach them from day one military bearing and to stifle their emotions you've now paused their emotional and mental development from that moment. And I think what happens is, is eventually you, you, you lock it in as a, Mm -hmm. as a pattern. I mean, very much of what cognitive theory is and mental health is examining patterns of behavior because those cognitive pathways get worn and because your brain is always trying to do so much and it's looking for what, what the fuck worked last time. And we're just going to do the same fucking thing. We're going to do the same fucking thing because it works. Mm -hmm. I'm still alive. And it, it all kind of worked out. That's why it's like changing habits and behavior is so difficult because you're, you have to like go back and, and create a new path. It's like water running down a window. When that first drop goes, any subsequent drop follows the exact same path because it, it, it's the surface tension and it's, it's, it's what's worked. Your brain's very much the same way. Mm-hmm. So when you want to create a new pathway, you have to go back and it takes a lot of fucking work, which uh, spoiler might also be what we're doing here. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a burden on the Air Force that if they're willing to take 17 and a half year olds that have the prefrontal cortex is not formed, mm-hmm. that they need to give them a foundation and they need to give them a little bit of, it needs to be development and they need to have more latitude than, than a fully developed adult. And that's, this is not in any way, shape, or form a slight to the 17 and a half to 26 year olds serving the Air Force. It's not, mm-hmm. but this is the reality that we're in. And I think the idea of military bearing sets the, it's, I think it's the very first step on that cognitive path mm-hmm. that eventually leads to a hollow emotional pillar. I, I see your point. And, and you could argue that. I would still say it's the individual's responsibility though, because take for example, like the story you told just not too long ago, the um, uh, in 2002, someone was trying to tell you to, you know, take a step back and, and look at your actions, right? Mm-hmm. I say it's the individual's responsibility because if they don't want to, they're not going to. That's fair. But also I, I would counter with in 2002, I was 24 years old and I was probably still struggling with impulse control. And, and by the way, when you look at the totality of the data points I was given, mm-hmm. he was the only person that had said my behavior was mm-hmm. unacceptable. 
everything else had rewarded me for that behavior in aircraft maintenance of being abusive and toxic and all these things. So, mm -hmm. you know, as a 24 year old where my judgment is not quite right and I have one dissenter and a vast majority supporting the behavior, mm -hmm. but what if the Air Force had specifically talked, you know, if there was some, you know, unfortunately, I don't trust the Air Force to do any training, right, which mm -hmm. is evidenced by the four pillars training, talking about emotional health and not fucking doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, it's it's difficult because the, the Air Force is so shitty at doing the real work for the force, mm -hmm. instead of just the veneer or the window dressing, like stand down days. And, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get into this in the next couple of podcasts coming up. But stand down days, those aren't real. You don't get anything done there. And it's just to satisfy someone to make it look like something's being done. But so I don't know if I trust the Air Force to like with the prefrontal cortex of all the 17 and a half to 26 year olds, I'm sure they would they would fuck it up anyway. And I think there's probably a certain element of uh, the Air Force might even like the way it's going because it gives mm -hmm. them some control over over what the output is, because as we've said, the reality is being a dick gets jet fixed faster. Mm -hmm. It does. So is is the Air Force incentivized to fix maintenance culture? I think in the long term they are. I think you get better quality jets mm -hmm. in the long term if you have a healthy culture. Yeah. But when you're resource starved, all you can see is the short term. All you can see is yeah. today and tomorrow. Basically. I mean, there's, there would be a lot of positive uh, consequences to taking care of the four pillars we talked about, you know, and investing in, in, into it. It's not just that. I mean, talking about skill retention, you know, I mean, I got out for my own reasons, but I mean, a 10 year staff sergeant full up some level, I'm sure is pretty valuable to the air force. I right would now. argue probably the, in aircraft maintenance, I feel like a full up seven level staff sergeant that's experienced on the airframe is probably the most valuable asset you have in aircraft maintenance period. Right. So, I mean, skill retention you know that there's one you're going to keep those people in it, i mean i don't know i had like we talked about i had a great time at home but like i always knew that the worst time could happen again so you make that good time consistent yeah you, you skill retention i don't know but then you have happier people they're going to be more excellent in what they do they're going to be more oh yeah liable to be integrity you know and, and, uh, truthful and have integrity but what you're talking about is i think what me and stromsky are going to talk about in an episode coming up is how you lead in the military and how you lead in the civilian sector, those are radically different things. I, I had the mistaken belief when I was getting towards the end of my career that I'd be able to go into a leadership position in the civilian sector. And I had this great leadership toolkit from the military. And then luckily, I think this is probably one of the beginning of my journey of like introspection was I realized that the military leadership environment is so coercive. If you don't like... I was your lead super at some point, right? Was I your, yeah. your lead super? Like, if I told you to do something and you didn't, mm -hmm. and I wanted to press, I could I could try to get you for, you know, violating a, a lawful order or insubordination. Even yeah. though I never did, you still knew that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's always in the back of every, I guess. You have to do what your boss says. Yeah. Right. That doesn't, ex that doesn't exist in the civilian, like a civilian boss cannot put you in prison mm -hmm. because you did a TPS report the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Like that doesn't exist. So that leadership toolkit, even if you aren't threatening people with prison, that doesn't matter because there's a whole fabric stringing every, all of that culture together of, if you defy me, you can go to prison. Mm -hmm. 
or you'll lose your pension mm-hmm. or, you know, you won't be able to find employment because of the category of your discharge or whatever it might be like, mm-hmm. and never mind the fact that that's very often reminded we write LORs and we lead with, you know, you violated article 92 of the uniform code of military justice. You know, we lead with that. We remind people constantly that that defying what you're told is breaking the law and you can go to prison for it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't know how to square that with having a healthy environment. I, I mean, I mean, I certainly worked for bosses where I never thought they would mm-hmm. put me in prison bosses that would promote disagreement or dissent from their decisions. Cause they wanted to see all the angles. But in my experience, those were the exceptions, not the norm. Yeah. And I mean, because the norm is what we've talked about, service before self and the toxicity that results and just the pressure of all this accumulation. Like, I don't know that there would be anything that gets away when you maintain that, just, you don't even talk about the core value and you maintain, like you talked about the expectations versus resources, you maintain those expectations and that's just going to happen. I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's not likely to change. I think the best avenue for change here would be just the individuals Like we talked about individual responsibility and, and like just realizing that, yeah, I'm about to enter a toxic environment. I can handle it because I've been given the appropriate tools to handle it and I could come out of it, I guess, mostly unscathed, you know? And, and I'm going to do my best not to perpetuate it or pass it along, which is the bigger piece. Yeah. Mostly unscathed. Yeah. You know, don't carry it around with you. It's like, if you can go into it and you can handle it and you can come out and you have the tools necessary to just clean yourself off of that, you know, detox, shower, you know what I mean? I think that would be a more viable answer than, you know, any vast changes in, in changing the meaning of military, but trying right. to have the Air Force teach emotional health or, you know, changing a core value. Or what if, what if when you're losing, I mean, I'm not, I really don't mean to sound condescending and patronizing, but I do this with my kids when mm-hmm. I'm trying to talk to them and they're in trouble or me, if not in trouble, if they, if they failed at something and mm-hmm. I'm trying to like walk through where was the, where was your judgment off? Where did the process fail? You know, what can you learn from this? You know, failure is mm-hmm. part of growth, part of learning. That's fine, but let's dissect it and autopsy it so you can learn from it. And very often they get really kind of upset. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, we'll go up to your room, take 10, 15 minutes. You know, the, the answer is, you know, cry through all of this, push it out. Uh, that probably wouldn't be my answer to a young airman just because, you know, that's, they could, I'm not going to judge them, but like if, if there's, it's really interesting because there's been many times I was losing my military bearing mm-hmm. um, and it was whatever was going on, we would stop and go, Aaron McGee, you need to check your military bearing. And it would be basically the reminder of you need to stifle all of those things you're experiencing, which almost makes no sense because when you're battling withholding your emotions or masking your emotions, you're certainly not fucking listening to whatever this idiot is telling you because you're focused on, I need to not get in more trouble by expressing these emotions. And you're fucking, you can't hear. You might hear it, but you're certainly not digesting it. Is it unreasonable for a supervisor or a commander or anybody else to be like, hey, why don't you go take 10 minutes and come back and we'll try this again? I don't see why it would be. When have you seen that? Never. You know? Never. I've never. never fucking seen it. Ever. It's almost, I don't know. 
because I've been that person. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I've, yeah, maybe I've said, I'm sure, I'm sure I've said, hey, you need to check your military bearing or something, words that effect. I'm sure I've done that. And I don't know why I wouldn't have just been like, hey, go take 10 minutes. I think it's, and, and for me, it was also like the more skilled I got at using my words to slice. And it's very much, you can see when your words cut someone. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's a, it's a feedback for my behavior to know that it's working. Mm-hmm. When they start having that visceral emotional reaction, to me, it reminds me or it lets me know that what the path that I'm on or the words that I'm saying, that's getting what I want which is mm-hmm. to hurt this person. And then I get to further hurt them by saying, pausing me like, you need to get your shit under control as if it's their fault mm-hmm. that they're having an re- emotional reaction to my mm-hmm. toxicity and abuse. And I'm not saying all military bearing situations and all conversations are abusive. It might just mm-hmm. be in Article 15 and the person's really upset over it. But I think in maintenance, probably a, a, not the, maybe not the majority, mm-hmm. but a good portion of the time, it's a manifestation of the abusive culture, I think. Mm. So like that build up situation you just told about basically creating an emotional response from a possible emotional response, you know, like, and at any point in that time, wouldn't have a, like a 10 minute break have helped you? Cause like, weren't you losing your military bearing at that point? Oh yeah. There was many times, but you know, what's really interesting is so, like when 10 minute break help you at that point. Oh, it would. And I'll tell you yeah. what, that's a great point. I'm really glad you brought it up military bearing is really subjective mm-hmm. and we learn that in basic we literally learn that in basic so like you're right me screaming at someone mm-hmm. i've lost my i'm i'm my my emotions are out of the out of fucking control yep but i'm in the position of authority mm-hmm. and i'm using anger mm-hmm. what's really interesting is boy this podcast just got a lot longer what's really interesting is we recognize in the Air Force that when you're in a position of authority and you sexually abuse someone, that is an egregious harm to the point where we're saying if you are in a position of authority, you can't even have consensual sex with certain people that are below you, like training environments, recruiters, mm-hmm. first, whatever. If you are a tech school instructor and there is a student not even in your class that is older than you, you are not allowed to have sex with them consensually, period. If you meet them off base and neither of you disclose that you're in the military or one's a trainee, one's an instructor, and then you engage in consensual sex and later it's learned, I'm pretty sure you can still be prosecuted for that. It's like a strict liability thing. So the Air Force has recognized that the dynamic of being in a position of authority creates a propensity an unfair opportunity for an an abuse. But when it comes to anger, it is not even fucking considered in my experience. So you're right. When I was yelling at people, I did not have military bearing. But think back to basic. What do the drill instructors do? They scream and they get in your face and they yell and scream at you. And what are you told you have to do? You have to stand there. Military bearing, add attention, and take it. Mm. And the idea is it's preparing you. They want to test you to see if you can survive in an adverse climate. I think what they're doing is they're priming you for the environment you're actually going to be in for the majority of your career, which is going to be people above you, 
they get to be angry and yell and scream. And it's your responsibility to take it and not express emotion. Well, I mean, the way it was explained to me, I think our TI even explained it to us after the uh, six and a half weeks was over. You know, it was basically his job to break us down. That's what that was about. It was to break us down so that he can rebuild us. And not so much to, you know, I, I didn't get that from it. You know what I mean? From his explanation, I didn't get that he was trying to prime us for. Oh, I don't think he, I don't think anybody knows it. Oh. I think it's, I think it's a filter. Mm-hmm. Can you survive getting yelled at where you have to stifle your emotions? I don't think anybody's articulating that. The idea mm-hmm. is we need to find the weak people and weed them out early. That's very much what it's justified as. And also maybe the breaking down and building them up, maybe mm-hmm. an ego breaking thing as well, mm-hmm. which is also probably a little bit problematic because it's basically creating this paradigm where I as a person have more importance, say, or worth than you as a person. That's really what we're talking about. We're talking about breaking people down and building them back up. We're basically trying to let them know they are not equals anymore. And then we're going to build you up into a job or an AFSC, an airman and a crew chief. That's we're breaking. You're no longer Mike Sissel, this -hmm. person. We're going to break this down and yell at you to let you know there's a new power dynamic here and we're going to build you back up, not as Mike Sissel, we're going to build you up as Airman Sissel, Mm -hmm. F-16 crew chief. Mm -hmm. And even though there's not a drill instructor out there that realizes this, it's, I think it's, uh, I think you're at the outset, you're creating, you're setting those cognitive pathways of Mm -hmm. this is what you're going to experience. I guess, yeah. I mean, you can't really argue that point. It just brings me back to, yeah, there's no change in it. It's just, can we give the right tools to deal with it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. And also recognizing it for what it is. Yeah, recognizing what it is. You talked about up to 26-year-old, you know, the frontal, frontal cortex. You know, it's not like the military can just start, okay, if you're not 26, you can't come in. I would argue you that's know? how it should be. That would literally be my argument. But the reality, you know what the reality is? If you only are allowed to recruit people that have good impulse control, mm-hmm. No one's going to join the fucking Air Force or the military because a lot of people join on an impulse. Yeah, a lot of people did. I mean, I, I don't think I did. I thought about it for quite some time. I did GRO, which you see in high school. And stuff mm. like that. So I had thought about it for some time, but it was definitely, it's not only just an impulse, but it's also, I mean, at the time that you and I were joining, the 20-year retirement was still a thing. Yep. That's a pretty good deal. You get the GI Bill. That's a sweet deal. I mean, I'm still reaping benefits from that. I mean, you know, there's a lot of like sweet deals, you know, some carrots, you know, hung around in your face. Like, oh, you're going to get a good paycheck. You're not going to have to pay food. You're going to be on base. Yeah, I certainly appreciate the fact that the Air Force is paying for all of my law school so I can graduate and start suing the fucking Air Force. Like, that's a pretty good deal for me. So I definitely appreciate it. Uh, so the last pillar is spiritual. Yeah, last last pillar is spiritual. Which I'm a spiritual person, but there's a lot of people that aren't. And mm-hmm. when just seeing that, there's an implication that if you're not in a religion, that you are somehow incapable of having this balanced base sort of deal. Okay, so we already we already walked through that physical, the Air Force doesn't support the physical pillar. Mm-hmm. We've definitely camped out a lot of time in the emotional pillar to say it's mm-hmm. hollow if it even exists. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, the Air Force has two pillars that aren't there. Mm-hmm. And then the spiritual pillar... When the training is given, it talks about if you believe in a higher power, you re- you rely on that and use that support to kind of build yourself, your resilience to prepare for the, the pressure of whatever is going to be on top of these pillars. But then there's also this seems like it's a 
an add-on or an afterthought of, oh, and if you don't believe in a higher power, then we're just talking about like meditation and stuff like that is still useful. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a higher power, right? Like Buddhists are spiritual. I don't think, you know, they get the Buddha, but, you know, it's all about individual meditation. Correct. But I think a lot of people struggle. I think, and I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm not an atheist or an agnostic, but I think a lot of atheists, I suspect, and I'd be interested in any comments on this podcast, I think a lot of atheists probably find the whole idea of a spiritual pillar being co-equal to uh, physical, mental, emotional to be not aligned with their their understanding and their perceptions. And I think it, what, it, what it implies is they have a deficiency because they're not spiritual. I don't know. I think I think the spiritual can be. I mean, it's plausible. I can't argue that it's not plausible, right? I mean, obviously, but it just depends on how you would interpret the spiritual pillar. I mean, well, how do you interpret the spiritual pillar? At first blush, if you hear someone spiritual, what do you think? Just like your personal beliefs about the world, hmm. okay, and how it is and how it runs, and you know, just why you think you're here. So even the word spiritual involves with spirit. Like my my first instinct when I hear the word spirit or spiritual is. That person mm. believes they have a soul because mm. that is your spirit, right? Okay, yeah. So if you're an atheist and you don't believe you have a soul and you hear spiritual, and I, I mean, I'm, I know I'm creating this very narrow hypothetical requiring you to exist in this rule set so that you can give me the answer I want to hear. Like, I understand that's what's happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like I said, if any atheists are listening to this or any agnostics or anybody that doesn't believe in a higher power, I'm interested in what your thoughts on when you hear the word spiritual Mm-hmm. in this context or from the military does that make you feel uh how does that make you feel because i'm trying to imagine how it would make them feel mm-hmm. uh, and i very well could be wrong and mike could be right where if you hear spiritually you just think you are aware of your place in the world and values that are important to you because mm-hmm. that's what you're saying right basically and however that takes shape to you be it mm-hmm. you know islam or uh zoroaster or you know hindu Flying speed, yeah. I, I mean, that's a good joke, but there's no. I, I, if someone really thinks that's real, and I, I hope I'm not, and I hope all of my audience isn't flying spaghetti monster. Or they call them pastafarians. I hope, hope my uh, listeners aren't pastafarians, or else I'm just going to alienate fucking all of them. They'll be like, "Oh, this podcast sucks." They were bashing on my religion. It, it is. It is a, a official, right? It's an official religion. Yeah. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, I know, but which I I love the uh, I love the idea of deciding what's religion is so arbitrary. So it's going to make the most ridiculous religion and cram it down the U.S. government's throat and allow me to wear a spaghetti strand around my head for my driver's license picture. Like that has big Chris McGee energy to it. So I'm not bashing, but I don't think anybody actually believes there's a flying spaghetti monster. It's more of a bunch of atheists that are making fun of the ridiculousness of that they perceive of religions, but. I guess the real question is, at, at first blush, when I think spiritual, I mm-hmm. feel it's almost exclusionary to people that are atheists. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I imagine they feel the same way. I guess. I mean, if it's plausible. You can argue. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to say that, yeah, that's it's plausible. But, I mean, again, it's, if, if somebody's atheist and they don't care about spirituality, they can ignore it pretty easily as well. Yeah, they can. But there's a, the Air Force has placed a co-equal pillar like no one can argue that physical health is good for you or mental health is good for you. And certainly we just walked through why emotional health is really fucking important and lacking. 
Mm-hmm. So like there's not an atheist that's listening that wouldn't hear physical, mental, and emotional as, as definite pillars to having a healthy life. Mm-hmm. And then to see spiritual next to it, given equal sort of weight, I would feel excluded is mm-hmm. how I would feel. Or how about what, what if, what if it was physical, mental, emotional, and Islam? Well, that's pretty specific. It is sure. But how would a Christian feel? I don't know. Probably uh, not great. Not right. <laughs> or just any other religion you name, really. Yeah. You know. Right. So I mean, but that's. I think that's why they chose spiritual because it's not. I think so too. In the, in the sense. But I think it's not a good. I don't know what a, I, I. You know, I hadn't thought this far ahead. I don't know what other word I would use there. I probably wouldn't use spiritual. I don't know what word I would use. Like I said, but it would be. It would be. Um, purpose. I mean, that's really what you're getting at when you're talking about a higher power. It's mm-hmm. it's finding purpose, meaning. Mm-hmm. I think anyway. Okay, so we went over mm-hmm. as I kind of half expected. Anyway, I know last time you said, "Man, I talked to Hackworth for three hours on this podcast." Well, between last week's hour and this week, we're at an hour and a half. So mm-hmm. I get you got two and a half hours and. Oh, uh, also, it'll be standard if you if you think of anything, especially after listening to this. If you think of anything else, let me know, and uh, we can come back on. Based on the conversation today, where we talked about trying to figure out the first time you were toxic, mm-hmm. um, recognizing the service before self plus resource restriction can drive abuse and toxicity, and then the Air Force's four pillars and how we kind of showed that a lot of those pillars are hollow or non-existent. Mm-hmm. Trying to like wrap your mind around the whole conversation. Do you have any? Final thoughts? No, I just I just hope it was clear. You know, like my thought process was clear enough. Because um, I know I can kind of ramble or mumble sometimes. So I I just hope that was clear. And yeah, then no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to piggyback. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's clear you were never a senior NCO because you would never have refused an opportunity to piggyback if you were. I hated it. <laughs> I'm going to piggyback off this episode and say uh, what I what we're doing here is we get the benefit of looking back on our career mm-hmm. and being able to admit things we did without jeopardizing our career anymore. And I'm not saying everybody shares experiences that me and Mike had, but I think a lot of maintainers do. And my thoughts for doing this, especially with Mike, especially on this topic, as I told Mike before we started, after last week's episode, I got a bunch of messages for people that wanted to come on, previous guests. So it'll be Curtis, Stromsky, Ashley is coming on. Um, Dr. Smith's going to come back on and talk about the the pregnancy and mental health and stuff. But last week's episode sparked a lot of good conversations. So, you know, we have these talks because we have the benefit of being out and being able to admit these things. But I, all I would ask is anybody that's currently serving, just listen with an open mind. And much like that gentleman in 2002 that told me I was being abusive and toxic and I was going to destroy people that were important to me and I didn't listen. I feel like me and you are probably doing very similar things right now. And what I'll say is I, in 2002, I wish I'd listened. So if you're listening to this and you're in aircraft maintenance, I would just recognize that we're trying to approach this from a place of good faith and we want to make things better. And part of that is if you're a listener, you might be a part of that abuse and I'll do my best to work through that for you. I just need you to listen and kind of understand and it might be able to indirectly help you. So that's my uh, final piggyback putting my master and hat back on.
Okay. Well, thanks, Mike. No problem. I appreciate you coming on. It was really good. And like I said, if you hear anything else or if you think of anything else, uh, let me know. We'll do it again. Other than that, adios. <laughs>